Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 24 of Everything Compliance, the only compliance podcast, which is a roundtable compliance, focusing on compliance, compliance-related issues by four of the top compliance commentators around. We have Mike Volkoff, president of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance in London. Today we take a look at 2017. Each person picks a top story to talk about and how that might inform compliance going forward into 2018. Matt Kelly takes a look at vendor risk management and how that will inform compliance going forward. Jonathan Armstrong takes a look at data security from a couple of brand new cases that came out just at the end of the year and how they will impact those issues going forward. Jay Rosen takes a look at the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And I step in for Mike Volkoff to consider the continued internationalization of anti-corruption compliance. We have some epic rants on this uh, episode, so stay tuned to the end. Also, I would note that this episode contains explicit language. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again for another episode of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. The Roundtable Compliance Gang consists of Matt Kelly, editor and founder of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance in London, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and unfortunately, MIA for this episode, Mike Volkoff, the founder and CEO of the Volkoff Law Group, and I'm going to take the liberty to sit in for Mike on this episode. In this episode, we're going to take a look at some of our favorite stories from 2017. Many of us have done year-end retrospectives. Uh, Some of us only like to look ahead, so we haven't done year-end retrospectives, but that person will remain nameless, and we won't talk about him anymore. Nevertheless, uh, I thought it would be fun if we just talked about some of the things that really intrigued us, and more importantly, how they will bleed into 2018 going forward. So with that rather confusing introduction, uh, Matt, what really intrigued you about uh, uh, 2017, and how do you see that going forward into 2018? Yeah, so hi, Tom. I actually came up with a list, of a blog post I had on January 1st, looking at eight different compliance trends for 2018 that were largely kind of guided by, well, what's happened in 2017? But what really I saw a lot of in 2017 was um, a more acute awareness, I'll phrase it that way, a more acute awareness of the need for vendor risk management. And I had said that probably in 2018, we will see um, companies trying to either cultivate or grow or whatever the word is, but we'll see a more maturity, a more cohesive response to vendor risk management, which straddles a lot of different range of problems, including FCPA anti-bribery, but was was really driving it in 2017 was data security. And then, as you said, what might bleed into 2018, lo and behold, several days after I posted that on January 1st, we already had a big gusher of vendor risk management news in 2018 was this news about the uh, cybersecurity flaws, the meltdown and specter flaws that really, I think, sum up just how complicated vendor risk management is going to be. Uh, For anybody who has not yet seen or heard about what these flaws are, uh, they are security flaws that are actually in the microchips themselves of all of your computers. And when we say all I mean all. Look at your phone. Look at the computer you're using to hear this podcast. You have a broken, flawed chip in that device. Um, Apparently, these flaws have been around for a long time. Uh, Microchip makers generally use the same basic design, so basically everybody has these flaws in basically all the equipment you use. Um, We cannot easily get rid of these chips. You cannot go and cook up a newly designed chip in a couple of days and manufacture it by the end of next week. We're going to be living with this design flaw, this inherent security flaw, in almost everything for years before we get new equipment with better chips. 
Um, now, the good news is that before anybody freaks out, these security flaws are, number one, very hard for hackers to use, actually. Um, for better or worse, they probably have many other security flaws in your corporate networks that are going to be much easier for them to keep stealing your data and giving you ransomware attacks. I don't know how much they will use these flaws. Second, um, you can have a software patch into your systems that will basically let you work around the flaw in the chip. Uh, so, yes, there is a fix for this that can keep your data secure. But now this gets to the vendor risk management stuff that has been on my mind. Um, because so many companies now use some number of vendors for some number of IT services, including some very important services, you suddenly have a really big, vivid example of vendor risk management that could cause you real trouble. Um, you would need to go back to all of your vendors and ask them, have you patched something to, you patched your software to get around these two chip flaws? Um, lots of the big ones have, I'm sure, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Salesforce, and the rest. They're, you know, they're well aware of this. They're well aware they need to clean up their services that they are providing to you. But still, we see companies, uh, you know, I wrote about this a couple of months ago, Companies still don't even know exactly how many vendors they do have who have access to their confidential or sensitive data. Uh, this was from the Poneman Institute, which said that uh, the number of vendors a large company has these days that are actually touching the sensitive data, the important stuff, never mind the unimportant data, uh, that has gone from three to 400 um, vendors last year to, I think, an increase of 25% or so to well over 400 vendors this year that are touching your really sensitive data. All of them are now also exposed to these meltdown and scepter, um, specter flaws. You're going to need to make sure that all of them have patched this to some reasonable degree that gives you the assurance you need. The bad news from that Poneman report back in September was that most companies still are struggling even to understand who all these vendors are. So you might not know what the count is of your vendors, who might be in the hundreds. If you're a large firm, it could be in the thousands. What are they accessing? You don't know. What are their security controls for problems they might have that would let somebody hack them to hack you? You don't know. Um, this is the sort of conundrum that companies need to really get a grip on. There are some other immediate policy challenges that compliance officers need to at least be aware of. Um, you need to make sure that for the software you do own, you do have installed on your computers that you own that aren't delivered through the cloud, you need to make sure they're patched. Uh, you need to make sure that no employee brings a computer from his or her home and latches it onto the network unless it has been patched. You may need to make sure that you can't let them take data from the corporate network back to those computers at home that may not have been patched. Uh, so you've got IT usage concerns, you've got data security concerns, you've got vendor risk management concerns. Um, another bit of good news, such that it is, is compliance officers, you, you might, if you're thinking, God, do I have to do all this patching? No. The IT team, the security team, they do it. Your job is to help them make sure that they understand it and they have a policy for it. And everyone else in the enterprise knows what's going on and is following the policies to help achieve those objectives. Or if you are an audit person listening to this webcast, um, you need to make sure that you are assessing what these risks and controls are and the policies are to manage threats like this. Um, what really gets me is that here I've been talking about these chip flaws, Meltdown and Spectre, and how they lead to vendor risk management and all the responses you should have to it, with some very minor tailoring to my last five or six minutes of talking here. I could say almost the exact thing, the same points about, say, the GDPR. Because again, this is vendor risk management. Do all of them have data security protocols, data handling protocols, right to access your data protocols? Do all of them have these policies and controls in place that you can see for your customers who might or might not be wanting it if you're doing business in Europe? Like It, it seems like a very IT-centric risk, vendor risk management, and I think that's because it's the most immediate and it can 
caused the most damage. But um, this is a real thing, and it's going to get only bigger in 2018. It's already a very big deal right now, and we're 12 days into the year. Uh, so I just I'll be curious to see how much vendor risk management keeps, I guess, raising its profile and how well companies will be responding to it and how mature their vendor risk management is going to get. But this is going to become a big, big part of the ballgame in 2018. Matt, you often talk about uh, known risks and unknown risks. Is the vendor risk management, it, it, I would, it would opine it had been previously a known risk, but is the severity of that risk uh, increased in the eyes of the chief compliance officer, the chief risk officer, or others in a corporation who may worry about these sorts of things? Or is this really just an uh, academic debate among us uh, commentators? No, I think that the risk is getting bigger in two different ways. Number one, it is getting easier and easier to set up a relationship with a vendor, period. So I didn't say and tell the compliance officer and tell IT security or set up a relationship with a vendor with great security controls. All of that stuff, which should be in place, that's irrelevant to the fact that I could set up a relationship with a data storage vendor in by the time we're done with this podcast, and I will have no idea how good their controls really are. And if I were part of a large organization, I could do it without ever telling anybody else if their IT infrastructure is set up in a careless way. So that's, that's a big risk. And then number two is that the, the damage, the risk of harm from working with vendors is also getting bigger and bigger by the day. Uh, they can steal more data. They can launch ransomware attacks that are more difficult to um, prevent or to get out of. They can do more attacks that can cause actual physical damage to any assets you might be controlling with an IT infrastructure. Um, I don't want to geek out too much here, but there was news a few weeks ago of a reactor in Saudi Arabia that was hacked from the outside. They penetrated the company's um, customer service interface, which got to its management system, which got to its control system, which basically caused one of its turbines to short circuit. And there are suspicions that this was launched by Iran. Um, but, you know, that's a real risk. That can cause actual damage in the real world, never mind stolen data. Plus, the ability to strike up a relationship with vendors who could provide conduits has never been easier. So the need to control all of this, both how easy it is to strike up the relationships and the harm that those relationships can cause, it's only going up on both sides. And that's why I think this is not an academic debate. This, In IT security, this is an enormous problem and a huge concern. And it is rapidly becoming clear that you need policies and controls and risk assessments to get that done. Hence, compliance and audit executives are getting pulled into this black hole of, of trouble. Wow. So if that's not scary enough, I'm going to actually turn to Jonathan Armstrong now because he's going to talk to us in a uh, very closely related area, but it was a specific case involving... Um, well, Jonathan, I'm just going to let you talk about it because I've watched your firm's uh, video podcast on this Morrison case. And where do you think, uh, tying with what Matt told us, uh, the Morrison case might portend for going forward into 2018? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I, I think it is uh, all very worrying. Um, slightly worryingly, as Matt was speaking, the... Uh, uh, my home internet went down, um, and it seemed to have been a wider problem, which perhaps illustrates the bits that I certainly heard Matt talking about, about resilience of networks. And, and I think, in some respects, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the Morrison's case and from another case uh, just this week in the UK that, that, that underline a lot of what Matt has been saying and, and, and point to other issues. So in the Morrison's case, this was uh, actually a civil action, so a group action that's some respects similar to a U.S. class action that followed on from a data breach. And what happened here was that Morrison's auditors had decided that they wanted to test some employee data as part of their routine year-end audit. And 
for some reason known only to them, instead of testing the data on the uh, HR platform, the PeopleSoft platform that was hosting the employee data, they asked for that to be extracted from PeopleSoft and transferred to the auditor's own platform so that they could interrogate it on their platform and in their office. Now, why that was necessary, I don't know. And if you're involved in audits of this type, lesson number one, and there are many in the Morrison's case, is question your auditors, particularly question their data handling practices. But regardless, Morrison's is sort of, for those of you who are not familiar, almost like a smaller UK version of Walmart. They run a lot of retail supermarkets. And at the auditor's insistence, just under 100,000 employees' data was, uh, was lifted from the PeopleSoft system and transferred across to one of the internal IT audit team. Now, he was the sort of trusted guy with this data, and his role was to make it possible for the auditors to receive this data. So it was being extracted from PeopleSoft by employee number one, uh, given to employee number two on a CD, who was then going to make it available to the auditors. Now, unfortunately, they had had an episode with the uh, internal uh, IT audit guy, and he was suspected of using Morrison's postroom to run a drug business. Um, and in fact, he was uh, selling pill, uh, pills on eBay, etc. Um, they weren't illegal, but he was suspended as part of that whilst the police tested the, uh, the substances in the packages he was sending out using the company's mailroom. Now, uh, after some disciplinary proceedings, the employee was reinstated, and for some reason, Morrison's decided he could remain in a position of trust in the business. He was annoyed about the way in which he'd handled, uh, he'd been handled, as well as copying the data for the auditors. He uh, created another three CDs that he gave to newspapers, and he posted, as I say, just under 100,000 employees' details on a file-sharing website. The newspapers didn't publish the story. One of the newspapers told Morrison's. Morrison's told the police. The employee concerned was uh, arrested, and then he was eventually convicted and sent to jail. So that, you might think, was an end of the situation. But no, uh, lawyers representing about 5,500 employees decided to claim under data breach legislation in the UK, the predecessor, if you like, of GDPR that Bass had just mentioned, uh, for compensation. And they said that either Morrison's had what's called primary responsibility, so they were liable because they'd broken the Data Protection Act, or they had what's called vicarious liability, secondary liability, for the actions of this guy, Skelton, who who was by then in, in jail. And to cut a very long story short, the judge decided that Morrison's had taken reasonable security measures. That's something that some people might want to um, challenge, given that Skelton, they'd obviously had this disciplinary um, issue with him. But the judge did decide that even though Skelton's actions were criminal, because they had selected Skelton for this trusted position, they had the responsibility for the steps that he had taken. And as a result, they will have to compensate 
the employees uh, who, were, who were the victims of the breach. And this uh, initial trial was just about Morrison's liability rather than assessing the amount of damages. That comes at a later stage. Morrison's has said they're going to appeal this second limb, if you like, that they were vicariously liable. It could be that we'll have an appeal as well from the employees on the primary liability point. And just as an aside, Tom, that appeal might have a better chance of success because of another case we've had just this week involving Carphone Warehouse. This case again underlines some of the things Matt was talking about. This is the joint highest ever fine by the UK Data Protection Regulator. It relates to a uh, hack of a, um, a WordPress a web uh, publishing system that Carphone Warehouse, they're a, a, a mobile phone retailer, a bit like those Verizon shops you have around the U.S. Um, their system was compromised for 15 days after an attack from an IP address in Vietnam. That attack uh, potentially exposed the personal records of about just under 3.5 million uh, customers and around about 100 uh, and, and around about 1,000 employees, data like car registration numbers on the employees and um, uh, name, date of birth, marital status for the customers. And the information commissioner, the data regulator here, uh, has been pretty critical of Carphone Warehouse and saying that this was a known vulnerability and they didn't patch it. And also one of the other interesting aspects is they've said, well, hang on, Carphone Warehouse's public policy, they said all over the place, we take customer data seriously, and so you've got to live up to that standard effectively. Um, they said that they had a program in place, um, and as a technology business particularly, you need to do better, and again, underlying Matt's point, not only with the systems that you own, but the systems that you use. So if you procure a system from a vendor, then you're responsible. You have to do due diligence on that vendor. You have to make sure there aren't any vulnerabilities. And you have to keep checking back, doing things like penetration testing to make sure that everything's still working uh, as it should. And again, as the same Matt had mentioned, GDPR, just by way of illustration, this is the uh, joint highest fine uh, under the UK legislation. The maximum penalty is currently 500,000 sterling, and they were fined 400,000 sterling. Under GDPR, as everybody knows, the uh, level of fine goes up to 4% of annual uh, revenue. So in this case, the maximum fine goes up from £500,000 currently to £423 million after May. So a significant increase in penalty if this case were to be repeated again in May, June time. So I agree from this side of the pond as well. Cybersecurity has really come quick out of the blocks in 2018. And I think we can expect that focus on vendors and that focus on cyber to increase. So, Jonathan, uh, and I guess I'm going to throw this to both Jonathan and Matt, is 2018 going to be the year of data, data breach, data theft, uh, data fraud, uh, and really forcing all of us to take a look at not only the quality of our data, but how that data is stored and what are going to be our vulnerabilities going forward in a way that perhaps uh, we hadn't thought of previously? Well, uh, I'll try and answer that first. Um, and then, Jonathan, I have a question later on for you, too. Yeah. But uh, I, I do think, you know, will 2018 be the year of data breaches and data fears? I would say yes, but that makes it different from 2017 how. Um, what I will be curious to see in 2018 is the supposed guidance from the Securities and Exchange Commission 
that will be coming later this year about how companies should handle cybersecurity. Um, and what's really interesting to me is so far they have dropped hints that this will not focus too much on what is a disclosable event. And I've talked with you about this before, Tom, like what is a material cybersecurity disclosure? Is it only 1% of your customers, but you expose all of their data? Or is it 100% of your customers, but only their first names? You know, like we don't really know. I And the SEC has said, they haven't said they won't address that. They haven't said that they will. They will say they're going to focus in on what is a company's procedures for es- escalating awareness of the risk uh, of a data breach to the right people, um, procedures to make sure that insider trading or perceptions of insider trading do not happen, which we saw with the Equifax breach last year. And we even have seen somewhat some allegations of that with um, the meltdown inspector breaches, or not breaches, but flaws, discovered this year that they were disclosed after the CEO of Intel apparently knew about the flaws but had not yet disclosed them, and he was still selling shares uh, of Intel stock. And does that count as insider trading or not? Now, Intel says no. This is part of a regular share-selling program that uh, the CEOs had for quite a while. But it again gets to what are uh, a company's procedures for handling vendor risk management and handling a data breach, not just merely disclosing that it happened, but how do you conduct yourself once you're aware of a breach and make sure you get your act together uh, around insider trading, around diagnosing the problem, around escalating it to the proper people? Um, and let's also remember that the SEC itself had a big embarrassing data breach in 2017 that actually happened in 2016, but the SEC leadership did not become aware of it until the middle of 2017. And there still is no explanation of how did this not get escalated to the chairman immediately? Uh, which is a question that the new chairman, Jay Clayton, has been asking quite a bit. Um, so we'll see a lot of that in 2018 is how do we try and um, operationalize our risk management and risk awareness of these issues? I, I kid you not, Matt. I went to get my hair cut this morning. It's, it's sort of late afternoon in the UK. I kid you not, of all the conversations in the barbers, in a barber's chair in in rural England, would you expect insider trading and data breach to be the topic of discussion amongst those having their hair cut? But it was. Uh, I would have thought championship football or something or the Premier League, but. No, wow. this, this morning's topic was people trading uh, on, on their knowledge of data breaches that haven't been disclo- disclosed to the market. And, and, and trust me, I don't go to a high-end barber and I, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rural former mining village. Not the conversation I expect to have. I, I didn't contribute because I was more interested in listening rather than, than discussing. But, but I think when it's being talked about in the barber's chair, then you know, A, that it's hit the public psyche, and B, that regulators will have to act. Um, you know, when, when that level of the population is concerned about it, then there will be a lot of pressure on, particularly on who's trading shares when they know about a breach and it hasn't been made public. And, and to pick up your original question, Tom, I, I agree with Matt, it will be the year of data, but so was 2017. The other bit, of course, that we shouldn't forget is as well as regulators being concerned about big data and issues like that, they're also users of big data. You know, we, we often forget that the SFO, for example, are still sitting on 30 million documents that they've acquired in the Rolls-Royce investigation. They intend to sweat that data just as corporations are sweating data. And we're finding that regulators in the data uh, space are getting much quicker to act on investigations and are assimilating data much quicker. Uber would be one example. I think there's now seven EU regulators have publicly announced that they're looking into Uber. And I know for a fact that they're gathering data from all over the place on Uber's uh, data privacy practices. So, um, so regulators are big 
users of big data as well as being critical of those corporations that use data badly when it goes wrong. Uh, Jonathan, my question to you is, I saw this, uh, an item on, I think, LinkedIn just the other day that essentially the European Commission has just put out a, a warning to the UK that if the Brexit negotiation talks fail, that they should not assume that therefore data transfer between Europe and the UK is automatically going to somehow keep going or there's a reciprocal understanding of their protection regimes. And I, I read it as the EU was throwing a really sharp elbow to the UK. It's like, don't you ever think that if this all goes south in Brexit that you get to take data across the English Channel? That ain't going to happen. Um, but I don't know if I'm understanding it correctly. Uh, so I was just trying to get a sense of what is up with this. Should the worst happen in Brexit, I'm going to bet on the worst. But if that happened, like, how much is this data transfer issue going to become a, a big pain in the neck? Yeah, I think it could be a big issue. I, um, I was slightly critical of somebody on uh, social media this week for calling it news, to be honest. I... Uh, logged on this in March 2016, um, so almost two years ago, <laughs> saying uh, this would happen and that, uh, and that it is inevitable. And actually, the situation's got worse, not better since then. Why? Well, obviously, because we've had the Brexit vote, and my blog on this was pre the vote, predicting that this would happen if there was a vote this way. But secondly, because some in Europe, including David Davis, who is now in the cabinet, are more critical of Theresa May's attitude to uh, respecting uh, the privacy of data. Uh, they're more critical of Theresa May than they were of David Cameron. And some in Europe have that same concern, some influential members of the European Parliament, for example. So this is a big issue for the UK. And in addition, it's a more concerning issue than it was in, in 2016 because uh, Theresa May has introduced legislation when Home Secretary to allow the security services to override data protection rights. And just as the European uh, authorities have criticised the US for doing that, then equally the UK, I think, could be criticised in the same way. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying whether, that, um, whether the UK has got the balance right or wrong. I'm just saying that as a fact that this will cause more concern in Europe as a result. So it isn't a given that the UK gets an adequacy uh, finding. And um, I'm not sure it was helpful for this document to be issued. I, I do think it's almost like stating the obvious and um, but but I, but I think that the concerns are real. So, gentlemen, I'm going to step into uh, uh, Mike Volkoff's shoes on uh, for a slot. But first, I'd like to uh, really acknowledge the eruditeness of the British Tommy there, Jonathan, by having a discussion in the barber shop <laughs> on <laughs> on such matters. I think it's certainly speaks to the plebeian nature of life here in Texas that uh, we really don't get to that level of uh, discussion. Nevertheless, what I would like to highlight from last year is something that we had seen uh, over a couple of years, and I think we'll see more of going forward, and that is continued cooperation between the U.S. and foreign regulators. I would frame that in the context of, uh, I think everyone is aware that uh, 2017 was the 40th anniversary of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act enactment into law, but it was also an anniversary that uh, may be as important going forward, which was the 20th anniversary of the OECD anti-bribery uh, convention. And that was, uh, I think, one of the seminal moments in the worldwide fight against bribery and corruption, which moved uh, uh, to a more global enforcement uh, setting. In 2017, we had four uh, significant FCPA enforcement actions that all involved both international investigation and, indeed, international enforcement. And they were the Telia case with $965 million in fines and penalties on a worldwide basis, the Rolls-Royce case with $890 million uh, in fines and penalties on a worldwide basis, 
Keppel Offshore case, uh, recently uh, announced in December, with $422 million uh, in uh, fines and penalties on a worldwide basis. And then finally, we had a separate uh, FCPA enforcement action brought by the Department of Ju- uh, by the U.S. regulators against S- SBM offshore at 238 million, but that's paired with a, uh, a nearly 18 month old uh, enforcement action brought by Dutch authorities for 240 million. So 478 million paid by SBM offshore uh, as well. So uh, I think it really speaks to the uh, greatest showing of international cooperation, uh, both in investigations and enforcements going forward. And it also brings up the uh, potential problems of double dipping or piling on. In the Telia case, then acting Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Blanco pointed to the um, terms of the settlement to uh, allege or at least articulate from the department's perspective that there had been a fair, appropriate, and coordinated resolution so that there was not double dipping. The question will be, uh, at least one of the open questions will be going forward, can there be a double prosecution or what we would call in the United States double jeopardy? Indeed, the the risk of international double jeopardy was addressed by the Paris Court of Appeals, uh, albeit in an individual action, uh, around Jeffrey Tesler, and if you'll remember, he was the intermediary in the first Halliburton uh, case, the TSKJ cases, and he was criminally prosecuted in France for the same alleged bribery which he pleaded to, uh, guilty to in the United States. Uh, he did not deny the allegations or otherwise defend himself in the French proceedings because in doing so, it would have violated his plea agreement with the U.S. authorities. The French court held that the U.S. plea agreement was coercive and involuntary, and therefore uh, um, there would not be a prosecution of Mr. Tesla in France because uh, he had already subjected himself to to jeopardy. Uh, It's doubtful the U.S. authorities would take a similar view if the case was reversed. Nevertheless, it shows the uh, potential for uh, piling on double jeopardy and how that might all work out in the corporate world. The other thing we saw, and I mentioned the the investigative components of cooperation, we've seen that multiple times over several years, and in 2016 was really the first time we saw the split of payments for fines and penalties, and that con- continued with those series of cases cases that I talked a lot about a little bit earlier. The um, uh, other kind of point to uh, consider is how the United States will prosecute individuals uh, that they can get jurisdiction over when those persons have given testimony or even statements in other jurisdictions. And that generally falls under the, uh, the topic of compelled testimony. And when there is compelled testimony, uh, in the, at least in the U.S., courts have ruled, in, at least in the Second Circuit, they ruled that in the library manipulation scheme, two defendants, Anthony Allen and Anthony Conti, could not be prosecuted uh, because the compelled testimony they had given in the United States violated their Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination. So without that testimony, the U.S. authorities could not move forward. It's unclear if a FCPA case, uh, how that might work in an FCPA case, but I would certainly raise the possibility that if there's a corporate internal investigation uh, and a company then makes a decision to self-disclose, that could be a form of compelled testimony. Certainly, after a company has self-disclosed, they have an internal investigation. They're sharing those results with the Department of Justice. It certainly could raise what we would call in the states of Miranda issues, but it also could raise compelled testimony issues. Jonathan uh, previously has talked to us about, under uh, UK and EU law, uh, what you must disclose to uh, individuals whom you are investigating personally, what you must uh, you essentially have a full waiver from them to allow you to have access to their emails and perhaps even uh, uh, ha- take testimony from them, but certainly utilize those emails uh, in any type of cross-examination. And if you do not have that waiver or consent, that uh, that person uh, uh, would not be uh, required to uh, give such testimony. But even if they give that consent, uh, not understanding that in the United States, the statements they uh, make can and will be used against them in a court of law or an enforcement action, it could certainly be problematic. Nevertheless, with these uh, continued uh, 
case law or case enforcement actions, I should say, I would really point to uh, that as one of the key uh, events of 2017 and really wrap it around the OECD uh, 20th anniversary uh, of its uh, passage uh, and enactment, because this is really what's led to the globalization. And then let me just tie it at the end of uh, my presentation to the remarks by Deputy Attorney Assistant General Rod Rosenstein when he announced the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy in November. He pointed to the economic aspects and the economic consequences of bribery and corruption. Certainly, the FCPA was passed 40 years ago with a set of reasons of U.S. companies engaging in bribery and corruption, taking tax deductions for doing so. Uh, It was felt by the then Carter administration that this was hurting U.S. foreign policy and putting U.S. companies uh, uh, at risk. And uh, going forward, we've seen multiple new reasons for FCPA enforcement. In the first decade of this year, many thought it was tied to security, specifically after the events of 9-11 and the uh, direct uh, correlation between uh, corruption and terrorism. But now we see the economic analysis and economic aspects of bribery and corruption and how the United States, uh, even with uh, a nationalist agenda by the current administration, understanding that... uh, the economic downside, not only in foreign countries of bribery and corruption, but also how it it unfairly tilts the playing field for U.S. companies going forward. So uh, it was really the internationalization of the fight against bribery and corruption that I wanted to highlight. The OECD uh, 20th anniversary, I don't think, got enough play, and it certainly was overshadowed by the FCPA, uh, and, and that may have been appropriate as well. But I'd like to see, uh, or I think we'll see more of that going forward. I think we'll see more of the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission really being the the fulcrum by which many companies agree to uh, a split of fines and penalties. Kara Brockmeyer and Daniel Kahn have called it the one pie concept so that uh, there's one pie of penalties, fines and penalties that's uh, cut up between various countries. And I think we'll see more of that going forward. So with that, Jay Rosen, what do you want to talk to us about that you thought was significant in 2017 and will be equally or uh, more significant going forward into 2018? Thanks, Tom. I have a complimentary point of view. I'm going to take a look at uh, the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which was uh, introduced by uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosen. Rosenstein at the uh, big conference in uh, D.C., the ACI yearly uh, FCPA conference. And just to give a little bit of context, um, I'm sure most people know this, but in terms of the um, pilot program, it was launched back in April 5th of 2016. By that time, uh, at that time, by Assistant Attorney General Leslie Caldwell. And uh, in conjunction with the announcement of the pilot program, uh, they talked about how they were uh, doubling the size of the FCPA, of the FBI, FCPA groups, and enshrining them in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, in D.C. So not only were we flexing our muscles with more uh, investigative resources, but they were also came up with the pilot program, which was to uh, stimulate voluntary self-disclosure, full cooperation, and remediation. So um, flash forward to the election last year, and many of us and other pundits were starting to look at how we thought the FCPA was going to be treated under the new Trump administration. Uh, flash forwarded to April 14th of 2017, and there was a slew of um, analyses done by different law firms looking at what had happened over the last year with the pilot program. And uh, basically seven companies resolved self-reported misconduct, and five received the pilot program's maximum reward at declination. Uh, two did not receive declinations, but received 50% and a 30% discount off the top. And uh, the reaction of the marketplace that DOJ was looking for seemed to be enforced because uh, companies were cooperating. Uh, they were seeing very realistically that those companies who did not cooperate received monitorships. 
and the DOJ uh, was trying to make further incentives for people to cooperate with this. So uh, we go to Rod Rosenstein now, and then these were his remarks that were made at the um, 34th International Conference on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and this was on Wednesday, uh, November 29th, 2017. And... Um, one of the first things he did was break with tradition, and he we do are not getting a Rosenstein memo, but we are actually taking uh, the new um, corporate program and in uh, making it part of the U.S. sentencing guidelines. And uh, you know, over the last year, I've read a lot of um, uh, Rosenstein's uh, writing, and I like the fact that he's very. Uh, sparse, he's very to the point, and he's uh, just the facts. So in terms of this, he said that uh, the new policy is going to reassure cooperation corporations that want to do the right thing. Uh, the new policy will not provide a guarantee. We can't eliminate all uncertainty, but preserving a measure of prosecutorial discretion is central to ensuring the exercise of justice. But with the this new policy, we strike the balance in favor of greater clarity in our decision-making process. So there are basically three key tenets about what this program's, uh, program works. The first is that there's voluntary disclosure. The second, that if a company does voluntarily disclose, uh, the goal is to resolve the case through a declination and we'll recommend a 50% reduction. And third, if you do not self-disclose, you have the potential to get a 25% reduction. So I think that with all the people who are worried about the sky is falling and we are not going to enforce the FCPA anymore, uh, last year turned out to be, I wouldn't say a watershed year, but I would say that uh, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, under the rule of law that we continued to push the FCPA uh, forward. And in terms of what people are going to start looking to now, um, on this morning, uh, Tom and I released our This Week in FCPA, and there was an article from Global Investigation Reports talking about monitors and about um, whether there is any bias when monitors are selected. And I think uh, if you're looking at the assurance and the transparency that this new FCPA corporate enforcement policy can provide, there is a big carrot here that if you self-disclose, not only will you get a declination, but you would definitely, uh, not definitely, but more likely than not, uh, will not have to engage the services of a monitor. So I think when looking at this to promote good behavior, um, we haven't even really touched upon uh, the, the different types of uh, compliance programs and, uh, you know, prongs that you need to have in that. But that also is enforced in this agreement. So I say uh, kudos to uh, Deputy uh, Attorney General Rosenstein. And this was my significant uh, development during uh, 2017. Jay, do you see this as a uh, continued evolution in the DOJ's thinking, clarification, or really building upon not only the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, but also the, uh, the one-year pilot program and the DOJ taking what it thought was some of the best uh, parts of all of those and putting them together in this new FCPA corporate enforcement policy? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, Tom. Uh, I know that in the older days, you were always uh, looking at different um, uh, resolutions to FCPA settlements and collecting all the opinion releases. And, you know, for a while, people kept asking for more transparency. And, you know, there was kind of a mystery about what did you need to do to get a declination. And then we flash forward to the uh, FCPA guidance. And then we had Wei Chen's document. So I think. We have, we're on a, a constant progress here of trying to make uh, crystal clear what needs to be done. And it's really not so much to incentivize the declination, 
But I think, uh, to your point earlier, Tom, is that getting the information out there about what is expected in, uh, you know, a top-rate ethics and compliance program, really that's the insurance to keep you from getting to the point where you have to self-disclose. And so I would say that's the part that, although it doesn't get a lot of attention, that is the uh, deterrence and the behavior that we're trying to uh, inculcate in companies both in the U.S. and globally. Anyone else have questions for Jay? Well, if not, uh, why don't we uh, go on to the rants, and why don't we take the same order? So, Matt, uh, what's your rant today? Well, I, I don't have a rant so much as another short warning for something that might be uh, a bit perilous for companies in 2018. We have recently seen uh, some hints from the National Labor Relations Board that they are going to revisit, number one, companies' use of confidentiality agreements in employee severance packages, and then number two, uh, the standards that companies can impose on disrespectful workplace conduct uh, in their codes of conduct. And basically, I think that these are moves to give companies a greater hand to do these things if they want, to use confidentiality agreements more liberally and to restrict uh, workplace conduct a bit more aggressively. Now, from the NLRB's perspective, this is really about trying to keep employees from talking to each other so they won't unionize, they won't take collective action, or things like that. And the Trump administration believes the Obama administration had gone too far in allowing employees to uh, talk with each other and complain about the boss. My question is more, how will this work in our more attuned era of uh, sexual harassment, where we are actually seeing legislation proposed to move against using confidentiality agreements in settlements around harassment claims. Um, But the NLRB is saying you can use them more broadly overall. I think we're going to wind up, number one, with a patchwork of legislative differences among the states, and federal law saying you can use them sometimes, but not in other times. Mess number one for compliance officers. And then number two, just because you can use these clauses under the law does, does not necessarily mean that morally you should. And I think we're going to see a real test here that we're going to give companies more freedom under the law to do things that a lot of us might not like. And will they have the corporate culture and core values to exercise some moral restraint against them. Uh, Microsoft, for example, has already said it doesn't care what the law is. It is not going to use confidentiality agreements in harassment settlements with its employees. Again, apparently it never had done so before, but it had the clause in there and they said, we're not going to do it. Are we going to see more companies going down that route, even when are they going to strive for that higher standard or are they going to go for the lowest common denominator the law will allow? Um, I'm going to be quite intrigued to see how that plays out in 2018. But that's that's my wrap-up for today. Jonathan, you have a rant for us? So they decided to move the embassy, and they had a competition, and a firm called Kieran Timberlake won that competition, And from my quick count, they've won awards for 13 buildings now and are regarded, apparently, as a really good firm of architects. And they designed the new uh, embassy in London, which is due to be opened in a few weeks' time. Now, this morning, our time, President Trump entered the debate on that new embassy. Now, to some, Trump might not have seemed to be Uh, to have a great track record as an architecture critic. Some might say, for example, that building an IKEA-style wall between the U.S. and Mexico would not be a great uh, architectural triumph. Some, uh, on our side of the pond, he's more associated with shiny golden towers in the middle of nice bits of cities that detract the eye and mirror light all over the place. Indeed, one architecture critic has described the Trump style of architecture as, quote, 
garish and, and self-indulgent. However, um, it seems that President Trump is willing to share his views on architecture uh, with one and all. And I think that the uh, world does deserve a debate on modern architecture. So I want to say, I want to give President Trump praise for highlighting the debate about modern architecture to his 46 million Twitter followers. And in fact, I'd like to go further than that. I'd like to say that because this is such an important debate and because he clearly has such a great contribution to make to it, I think that I'd like to encourage him to immediately resign as president of the U.S. to devote more time to this really essential topic. So I'd like to praise Trump instead of rant this week and encourage him to enter this debate full time. You know, I, I, uh, breaking news, Architectural Digest has uh, announced that they have uh, an open offer to uh, President Trump should, uh, should he become available. Fabulous. So uh, I want to pick up on uh, President Trump, because I wanna, but I want to take it in a little bit different direction, which, of course, was his shithole comment yesterday, which he made about Haiti and other African countries. He doesn't want to see immigrants from shithole countries coming to the United States. So let's break that down for a minute. He only named countries where the majority of the population were African, African-American, or African-Caribbean. So that means black folks. So he doesn't want any black folks coming to the United States. It's about as racist as it gets. But more importantly, and for the compliance professional, this is going to be an unmitigated disaster for U.S. businesses. Because why on earth would anyone want to do business with a country that not only says you're citizens are shitholers, but also that you're not going to be able to come to this country if we do business with you. So that's certainly going to help. And finally, he invited the people of Norway to come immigrate to the United States. Why on earth would anyone from Norway who has one of the highest annual incomes, highest GDPs, certainly great socialized health care, uh, come to the United States. I can't think of any reason. Certainly the skiing's better in Norway, and right now they probably even have better curling than Canada. So the shithole comment was typical. Now, I will note for the record that Donald Trump denies shithole comment uh, today, and he said in a tweet that he never said it, that people made it up, and that uh, you know what he really needs is a taping system in the White House so that his remarks will not be misrepresented by fake news and the fake media such as the New York Times. And I'll even throw in for you, Matt, the Boston Globe. So perhaps something good will come out of this, that not only will we get Norwegians coming to the United States, but we will get a taping system in the White House, and we will have President Trump's words recorded for posterity. And so we will know the next time he calls Haitians, Kenyans, or any other African country citizens shitholders, or if it will be certainly or only us folks out in the commentariat. That's my rant. Amen. Jay Rosen. Oh, oh Lordy, I don't know how I'm going to follow that, but I hope there is a taping system. Uh, I have more of a curiosity that I'd like to share with you guys. Uh, yesterday, I was listening to NPR, and I posted something on LinkedIn that the Kremlin is exploring crypto rubles as a way to evade U.S. sanctions. And in this piece, they talked about how initially things like um, Facebook and uh, different online tools were involved with more of a global... Uh, forethought that this is a way how people can connect together to pull down the walls to bring us closer. But the report showed how countries such as Russia and uh, maybe even China are taking technology and advancements that we've had that were initially developed to free our minds, and they're weaponizing them to use them against us. And that weaponization is either trying to affect our political process or, in this case, to take Russia or Venezuela or any other country that has been put on the sanction list. And by coming up with these cryptocurrencies, they're trying to move money around and evade the sanctions. So that's my sniglet stat slash rant for this week. 
Jay, I can only report that I feel a great disturbance in the force based upon your rant. Well, gentlemen, this has been a ton of fun. I want to thank everyone. Thanks for allowing me to sit in, and I look forward to the next time the Everything Compliance Gang gets together. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to Episode 24 of Everything Compliance. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only roundtable podcast in compliance. If you have any questions, you can email me, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Everything Compliance, where the top roundtable compliance podcast gang gets together to mull over recent events in compliance and ethics. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.